the Buddha in his conversations with his followers often talked about how our minds get caught in different ways at different times. I'd like to start this evening by sharing one of those teachings. He begins this teaching by describing one of the ways in which an ordinary person relates to experience. You might recall that when we talked about feeling tone, I mentioned a a text in which the Buddha also described how an ordinary person, I think think it was an ordinary worldling is what I said there. That was the translation that was used there. And an ordinary worldling, um, how they relate to feeling tone. Here he's talking about how an ordinary person attends to things. So he says, an ordinary person, this is someone who's not met the teachings, who doesn't practice. An ordinary person does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, They attend to those things unfit for attention and do not attend to those things fit for attention. This is how they attend unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else they are inwardly perplexed about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where did it go? And so these thoughts, this way of attending, I think you get the drift, attending through the sense or the perspective of I, of I, me. And he says, he goes on to say, when they attend unwisely in this way, one of six views arises. The view, self exists for me, arises as true and established. Or the view, No self exists for me, arises as true and established. That one's interesting. There, the Buddha points to this view of no self as being one of these six views that arises. Or the view, I perceive self with self arises, or the view, I perceive not self with self arises. Or the view, I perceive self with not self arises. Or else they have some such view as this. It is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. 
But this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. This, he said, is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views. The untaught ordinary person is not freed from suffering, being caught in this thicket of views. And so these, this kind of habitual way we have of meeting experience through this perspective of self, the Buddha says, inclines us towards these different views of self. And caught by this perspective of self, he says there's a direct connection with suffering. Another teaching. I'll read because this this kind of sense of questions about, okay, so he's saying here that pretty much any view at all around the self, any way you can even think about having a view of the self. I perceive self with not self. I perceive self with self. I perceive not self with self. All of these are mistaken understandings, he says. And so the question arises and has arisen for thousands of years, something along the lines of, well, okay, if there's no self, then who feels or who decides? Or this, this kind of question has come up in some of the meetings. And so I thought I'd read a story of an exchange between the Buddha and someone with questions along these lines so we can hear how the Buddha responds to this kind of question. So the questioner asks the Buddha, Venerable sir, who feels? Not a valid question, the blessed one replied. (laughs) I do not say one feels. If I should say one feels, in that case this would be a valid question. But I do not speak thus. If one should ask me, Venerable sir, with what as condition does feeling come to be? This would be a valid question. To this the valid answer is, with contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving. And this person, not quite getting it, the next question is, Venerable sir, who craves? Not a valid question, the Blessed One replied. I'll skip some of it, but basically, with feeling as condition, craving comes to be, with craving as condition, clinging, with clinging as condition, becoming. And so really pointing to this question around who is feeling, who is experiencing, it's not really relevant here. It's not kind of the way, the understanding of the way things are happening in our experience. So to me, this way of responding to the question 
is really pointing to the conditioned nature of our experience, that we are just this kind of conditioning, tumbling on. That's all that is happening. Conditions arising, passing away. Conditions arising, giving rise to other conditions, giving rise to other conditions. This is what this being I won't say this is what this being is, but this is how this being happens. Maybe I could say that. This is how this being happens. We are more a happening. One uh, philosopher, Buckminster Fuller, I thought of this today and went and looked on the internet. The internet is great this way. You can find pretty much anything. I remembered this from when I was a teenager. I read a book by Buckminster Fuller called I Seem to Be a Verb and uh, wanted to get the whole quote there. So here's what he says. I live on earth at present and I don't know what I am. I know that I'm not a category. I'm not a thing. I'm not a noun. I seem to be a verb, an evolutionary process, an integral function of the universe. That's what we are. We are functioning. We are functionings, human functionings, human happenings. We could say instead of a being, human happenings. So I'd like to just briefly give some kind of analogies, senses of how to understand this teaching of not-self in a, in a kind of more um, analogical way and through the use of analogy. Because there's nothing really out there that's a thing. We know through just our understanding to some extent of you know, the way physics works, that there's no stasis anywhere and that there's just this continual flux of particles. And yet we congeal into the sense of something. We congeal that we... we we put on top of experience that things are things, including ourself. And so one, uh, one analogy, you know, thinking about this happening as a conditioned set of arisings, an arising that comes with a set of conditions. A good analogy for this is a rainbow. A rainbow seems to kind of sort of be a thing, although it's very ephemeral. I mean, and when I was a kid, I thought, I, I was shocked that you could actually take a picture of a rainbow. It's got some kind of happening going on, for sure. But it's this confluence of conditions that makes that happening, that has that happening be realized, that makes that happening arise. 
there's moisture in the air, there's sun that has to be hitting those drops of moisture. And then there needs to be an observer. I think any time there is sun and uh, water in the air, at some place there will be a rainbow, whether it's landing anywhere. I mean, there would be the possibility of a rainbow if there was somebody standing in the right place to see it. But it really does need the observer. I actually decided to look this up on the internet to see how rainbows work. And one of the things that I thought was really cool was it said that a rainbow doesn't actually really exist in the way that we think it exists because you cannot approach it as a thing. You cannot walk up to a rainbow. If you walk up to a rainbow, it may appear that the rainbow is kind of staying the same distance from you. Every step you take towards the rainbow, basically what's happening there is you're seeing a new rainbow because the distance from those water droplets is essential in terms of the refraction and where we are. The distance is essential. So we take a step we're seeing the water droplets refracted just a step further. So it's not, it's, 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 it exists in the, it doesn't exist in the way we think it exists as something out there. It's this confluence of conditions. At one point I was doing a self-retreat to, a friend of mine let me use their cabin on the Oregon coast this past January, and I was there during a really stormy time, so some of the waves were enormous. I was up on a cliff 75 feet up above the ocean, but some of the waves were, were breaking and s- spraying water up above the 75-foot mark of the cliff. And as I stood there one afternoon, each time the wave broke and s- sent up this shower of water, I saw a rainbow appear in the air in front of me. And sometimes I could see the rainbow appear and vanish and appear and vanish and appear and vanish as wafts of mist went through that area. It, it was very interesting to see. It looked like the rainbow was hovering there just waiting to be revealed. But it's the conditions that come together. And so the sense of self is kind of like that. It is conditions that are interpreted as I or me or mine. In another discourse of the Buddha, one that Sally mentioned the other night, the second discourse of the Buddha, the Buddha really kind of began to unpack this teaching of not-self with respect to the five aggregates. And so I want to just give a little bit of a flavor of this text. 
So with respect to each of the five aggregates, and I won't go through the entire thing with every aggregate, but just give you a flavor of it. With respect to each of the five aggregates, the first thing that the Buddha points to is this aspect of how we um, kind of think of a sense of self as being something that has control. Control over our experience, control over what we feel or think or do. This is a very, very common way to have a sense of I am. I'm the one who chooses, I'm the one who feels, I'm the one who thinks. The sense of I should be able to make things happen the way I want them to. And so this notion, this is a very common way to to kind of impute a sense of self, the sense of agency, the sense of control. And the Buddha points to this as kind of like what we see actually as we really go through our lives, we over and over again, we are, we have staring in our face this kind of truth of not self, only we don't see it because we have views and beliefs that we are holding to. And so we're looking at our experience through those views and beliefs and thinking, for instance, so, you know, something like, well, I should have control over my thoughts or I should have control over my emotions. Why can't I, why can't I just stop myself from, from doing this thing over and over again? We think we're failing. We think we're a failure. We think something, somebody is doing something to us as opposed to recognizing this is just simply an aspect of not-self staring us in the face, that we don't have this kind of control. And so the Buddha said, I'll just read a couple of these to give you the flavor. So form, one of the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Form, referring primarily to the body, but also to all form, all physical form. Form is not self. If form were self, the body would not lend itself to affliction, and it would be possible to say of the body, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. But because form is not self, it is not possible to say, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. Mental formations are not self. And I'm going to replace this with something, a mental formation. I mean, this includes, mental formations includes all of our emotions. It includes, it includes um, mind states. It includes things like mindfulness. It includes anger, frustration. So I'm going to read through this with a couple Anger is not self. If anger were self, anger would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to say of anger, let my anger be thus, let my anger not be thus. But because anger is not self, anger leads to affliction, and it is not possible to say of it, let my anger be thus, let my anger not be thus. Mindfulness is not self. If mindfulness were self, 
it would be possible to determine of mindfulness, may my mindfulness be thus, may my mindfulness not be thus, but mindfulness is not self. Therefore, it is not possible to say of mindfulness, may my mindfulness be thus, may my mindfulness not be thus. That's a little bit of a relief. It's also a way we suffer, isn't it? A lot of us suffer over this thinking, I should be in control of the mind. So this notion of control is one of the main ways to, uh, that we tend to impute a sense of self. And when we see that we do not have control, this actually, rather than, one of the, the reflections we might be able to use about this is rather than taking this to be a personal failing, to remind myself, ah, oh, not self. No control, not self. This is not self. Mindfulness is not self. Self-judgment is not self. Frustration is not self. And so that's one piece of this teaching, this notion. And he he pulls out this aspect of control, particularly for us to look at. And then for each of the aggregates, he reminds us, he reminded his followers, he actually engaged in a dialogue. He said, okay, so form, body. Is form permanent or impermanent? I said, well, it's impermanent. And he says, well, okay, so what is impermanent, reliable or unreliable? Well, it's unreliable. Is what is impermanent and unreliable, he said, fitting to be called self? And he went through that with each of the aggregates. Because the aggregates are impermanent and unreliable, they tend to lead to dukkha. They lead to dukkha when they are clung to. And they are in the, um, the time of the Buddha, one of the understandings or one of the kind of definitions, let's say, of what self is, what the self is that we are aspiring towards, is a self that is permanent and blissful. And so in this situation, he was most likely speaking to people who held this perspective that the sense of self, the self that is worth kind of aspiring towards is permanent and blissful. And what the Buddha says is, you know, everything in your experience You cannot find anything in your experience that is reliable and blissful all the time. And so is that worthy of being called self? And so those followers of the Buddha responded, well, I guess not. (laughs) I guess it's not worthy of being called self. But for us, I mean, maybe that's not the sense of self that we kind of connect with that idea of some permanent, stable, blissful entity that we're kind of shooting for, merging with the kind of oneness of that. Maybe that's not what our view is or what our worldview is. 
But what I think this partly is asking us to do, what I, I read in this instruction here, is the Buddha says, okay, well, what is your definition of a sense of self? What, what do you take to be self? And then start looking at it. Is it what you think it is? A sense of self we usually do impute some kind of solidity to, some kind of stability to, some kind of ongoingness to. Some of that comes from, um, you know, a sense of memory and some kind of continuity of remembering what we've done. So there's that kind of, some sense of some kind of stability of some sort of a, something that's traveling through time. But what is that? What is that experience? So to me, this, one of the things this teaching points to is whatever you think of as self, start looking at it. Because that's what he had, he had them do in this. You know, what is it that you call self? Something permanent and blissful. Okay, let's look at our experience. Anything you can experience that's permanent, that's going to be here forever? So nothing that's found in our process of humanness is permanent. So this exploration, how does does the practice help us to shift from this idea of not-self or anatta, the Pali term that's often translated as not-self. And I like that translation, not-self, as opposed to no-self. Because no-self, that translation does tend to have us kind of reify this idea of there is no-self, which was one of those views that the Buddha said leads to suffering. This notion of there is no-self established as this is the way it is. He says, that's a view that leads to suffering. And so, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, I think, is the one who really brought in this use of not-self, which to me speaks to, well, what do we call self? What do we, what do we, what do we call self? What do we take to be self? And then the, the not in front of it is, well, it's not what we think it is. It's not that. What do you think self is? Well, it's not that. And how about this? Nope, not that either. So the, the exploration here isn't to try to pick up this idea or teaching of not self or no self and walk around saying, I'm a no self. Or even... I'm a not-self, to kind of overlay that teaching or that idea onto our experience and try to not have a sense of self, because good luck with that. So our practice really is to see what is it that we are calling self? What are we taking to be I or me or mine? In this moment, are you the one that's listening? Are you the one that's a meditator? What are you taking to be I or me or mine right now? 
can often be some subtle thing there. One famous quote by a Zen master, Zen teacher Dogen, to study the way is to study the self. That's our work. Study these senses of self. Get to know what, what is the experience. To study the self is to forget the self. That my understanding of this teaching here, to study the way is to study the self. Our work is to study what we think of a sense of self. As we explore that, there's a very natural understanding that arises is, hmm, I thought that was self, but kind of showed itself to be not that. So a very natural unfolding of this study is that we begin to understand at a different, in a different way than a kind of intellectual thinking. We begin to understand this teaching of not-self in an experiential way. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And so to study the self, this is the exploration of what do I call I or me or mine? So there's different ways we may experience a sense of self. Get familiar with how you experience a sense of self. Sometimes it might be that we see a sense of self kind of congealing, a sense of, you know, a strong sense of identity coming into being, and we recognize something about a sense of self. Or we might notice, I think this is something, was kind of more of an earlier understanding for me, was seeing a sense of self shifting having a kind of an identity around some aspect of who I was. And then something else happened and in a split second there was another identity, kind of like a flip off of one and a flip on of another. On one three-month course, I think it was my first three-month course, I was um, kind of reactive to the questions that were asked in the hall, the live questions in the hall. And by one person in particular, uh, I, I got very argumentative in my mind with this person about their questions. And I spent some time out in front of the meditation hall outside on the driveway, walking up and down and feeling into that sense of, I am right. I know how these questions should be asked or whatever I was thinking, you know. I was this this identity with this very familiar, really, really familiar, analytical person. It's kind of, I was 40 at the time, 20 years ago. Analytical Andrea arose. And it was suffering. I could feel the suffering of it 
And so I was walking up and down and feeling that suffering, trying to understand a little bit of doing the microscope thing, like trying to figure out this sense of self. But, but I, was just, I was just watching it and feeling the suffering of it, basically. And then this, this, this truck drove up. It was one of those lunchtime things. And the truck drove up and stopped in front of the building and the brakes squealed and the door slammed. And, and my mind immediately flipped from this like 40-year-old analytical, like argumentative person to a two-year-old that was like, oh my gosh, it's a truck. (laughs) And I was just like reveling, like I was just standing there feeling the bangs and the big, you know, bursts of sound and just like rapture was just going through me. (laughs) And like a second. That was interesting (laughs) because that sense of self had seemed so solid so like there and it changed in a split second that helped me to see something about the impermanent nature of self and the you know that sense of that's me this is this is actually one of the really great um Uh, tools around exploring not-self, when we start to see these identities, just noticing what kind of senses of self there are. Another time I was sitting in the dining room, basically miserable, feeling the miserable self. (laughs) And then, and then I, um, I picked up my fork and I like noted lifting, lifting, and and suddenly I became a practicing yogi and the miserable, the miserable self disappeared. It's like, whoa, what happened? So we can see these, these shifts of identities. And in seeing these shifts, we start to recognize and understand, especially for ones that are kind of entrenched. The ones that are entrenched, we kind of impute a permanence to. We think it's always there. And we can start to recognize through this kind of exploration, like when I turned into that two-year-old, that 40-year-old analytical one was not there. It just did not exist. Beginning to kind of poke holes in this uh, belief of the solidity or the ongoing traveling through time of these identities. So the Buddha offered a number of ways to explore or he actually identified <laughs> he actually identified 20 ways that we create identities i'm not going to go through the 20 ways we create identities you can breathe a sigh of relief but i will just mention kind of the frame or a couple of the things he said about that we get the 20 by five aggregates times four methods of identifying with each one. Five times four is 20. So these four methods of identifying, he says we tend to see, we create an identity or a view of of self as I am something. I am my body, I am my feelings, I am my emotions, 
This is a very common kind of way that we identify. I'm angry, I'm miserable. We identify with roles. I'm the, the, the parent, the child, the teacher, the student. So we, we have this I am something going on sometimes. And so sometimes we can reflect or see or hear the kind of thoughts that are going on in our mind and begin to touch into the flavor of identity that's happening. Another one is kind of the possessive quality. Something is mine. My emotions are mine. You might have more of a feeling of the emotions being mine rather than I am my emotions. Maybe a slightly different flavor of identifying around the emotions. The body belongs to me. The body is mine. Some, some entity that exists that owns the body. And that flavor of, of identification. And then two other interesting ones. I am inside of something. I'm inside the body. I'm inside of consciousness. Sometimes in a meditative state it can feel like that. I'm inside of consciousness. A sense of kind of being, sitting here behind the eyes and looking out. The eye is up here somewhere, looking out. That feeling of being inside. Or something is inside of me. Another flavor of identification. Consciousness is in me, maybe. Emotions are in me. So the Buddha points to these different ways of identifying and um, just as a, a kind of a, he was a real analyzer. I mean, he really pulled things apart and saw how things worked and was, were put together. And so I think it can be useful at times to recognize we are identifying in different ways at different times. Now, for myself personally, this, this 20-part framework is not one that I use in my own practice very much. Occasionally, I'll use it in a reflective way, kind of recognizing, oh yeah, okay, taking, taking myself to be inside of my body, something like that. But there's another framework that the Buddha offered that I find really useful in my practice. And so that one I'm going to spend a little more time with because I can talk about how it's informed my understanding and informed my practice. So there's a, a very f- common encouragement by the Buddha when we notice something arising with the aggregates, with dukkha, with clinging, with so many different places, there's this encouragement. One should see with proper wisdom this arising, whatever it is, the body, feeling, perception, clinging, craving, One should see with proper wisdom, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So he he has this three-part kind of exploration. And what I began to to explore is not so much, I, I mean, sometimes I use that. Sometimes I just remind myself. It's kind of like using that as a reflection. Sometimes I remind myself when I'm caught by something. It's like this is a wisdom reflection we can drop in. 
caught by some mind state. This is not me. This is conditioned. So this, that, that's another way of understanding or framing this, this um, statement. This is, not, this is not who I am. And the understanding of the sense of self being a conditioned unfolding or conditioned arising. Sometimes we can just remind ourselves, yes, this is conditioned. I also like using, this is nature. One Sayada Utejaniya offered, this is nature. What's happening right now is like a plant growing or a rainbow arising, it's just nature. And so that reflection can sometimes help bring a little more balance in the mind so that the mindfulness can can have some more ease with it. So that's one way of using that reflection, which has been very helpful for me. Another way of exploring it is to look at the three parts and see what is the sense of self that's being kind kind of turned over. So the first one, this is not mine, is kind of turning over the possessive self. This is mine. And so there are times when the the primary sense of identification is around ownership, possession. My papers. At one point, at one point, um, had so much suffering in one retreat where I had taken ownership of a word. I had thought in some way that I had coined a a phrase or a word and I heard other people using that phrase. And they weren't giving me credit. So much suffering. So the that's that's one way of having that sense of self. I own this. This is mine. That's probably the most obvious form of selfing. And I think it's interesting for me as I reflected on these three, I, to me it's like each one points to a subtler sense of self. So this possessive sense of self, we, we recognize this, we know this one. And so beginning to to get familiar with it again in this way of like, okay, what is this sense of self? What is this feeling of possession? What is that like? When I start exploring, when I started exploring these senses of self, I found a lot of contraction in the body, a lot of familiar mind states. And what I began to realize is that what I called a sense of self was just a lot of familiar contractions in mind states. So the second one, this first one is this possessor. The second one is this I am not. And so that's turning over the sense of this is what I am. I am solid. I am this kind of being that travels through time. I am the one who chooses, who decides, who acts. So this is self as agent in some ways, this, this sense, I am. That uh, exploration around that sense of self, this, has been a, this, this is something that we've pointed to in several talks, is looking at this, uh, this aspect of how 
action happens. In the instructions on intention and in Sally's talk on intention and in Greg's talk on karma, we talked about this, this aspect of how choice arises. Intention arises in dependence on conditions. We can start to see this. I, I, gave, I think I gave the example in the instructions around intention that something might happen, you, you have, after breakfast, you've had your, your breakfast and you've had your tea or coffee or your water or whatever you've had to drink and then sitting in the hall after breakfast, the bladder gets full and the pressure builds, there's discomfort, there's the kind of intention to relieve that pressure which leads to the intention to get up, stand, use the restroom. Sometimes we can see this with such clarity that it's a little bit spooky because it, it really shows us at times how these, in, these intentions are conditioned. These intentions are conditioned. And what I thought was me deciding to get up, I decided to get up and go to the restroom, was a whole series of conditions unfolding. And so that can be a little odd to see sometimes, but we can be curious about this. You know, when we think I am the one who's acting or choosing, begin to investigate that. What is that? Who is choosing that That. As the, the Buddha would say, that's not a valid question. With something as condition, feeling, uh, intention arises. In this case, with feeling as condition, discomfort arose. With discomfort as condition, intention to relieve discomfort arose. And so this is the second sense of self, this... this uh, the one who's in control, who decides, who chooses. This one, I had an interesting experience um, one day seeing the subtlety at times of this, of this uh, feeling of being in control and the sense of self that's, that's kind of in there. I was um, taking a drive with my dear friend Annie one time, half, uh, teaching this retreat. We went out for a nice drive and it was a beautiful day. And she was driving me along all these back roads I'd never been on. And I was passenger in this, you know, just w- looking out the window and, and just like really happy. And I was feeling that happiness and as I felt that happiness, I was, I was, I mean, sometimes on these retreats, even as teachers, we gain some continuity of mindfulness and I had that happen in that moment. There was a real kind of continuity of mindfulness of seeing that, that sense of happiness arising. And, and what I saw in being present with it was that that happiness was predicated on this sense of, ah, oh, I've got it figured out. It wasn't as simple as just appreciating in the scene is only the scene and the herd is only the herd. There was a subtle sense of, ah, I'm in control. (laughs) That felt good. (laughs) And I just had to laugh at myself. It's like, 
wow, how subtle is that? You know, I didn't beat myself up for, for having that. It's just like, wow, that is so subtle. That sense of control. And the, the happiness had seemed so just, you know, simple. So this is a kind of exploration we can do. And then um, the third one, this is not myself. This one took me a little more kind of reflecting on what this might mean. And I don't know if this is what this is pointing to, but it was useful as I explored it in this way. And so this is not myself. What I began looking at is this sense of, so there's the sense of mine, there's the sense of I am, and then there's the sense of me. And initially I didn't quite feel into what a difference between I am and me might be. But as I kept exploring my experience, noticing the senses of self and what was going on around the sense of self, there was one point I clearly could see this um, sense of self as the one who does things. Seeing, seeing this, like these intentions arise and the, the actions follow and like, who's in charge here anyway? You know, it, it, it's really kind of odd. And, and seeing too something like um, the knowing, you know, the, the choosing or, or you know, knowing what I'm aware of. At one point, it got so clear to me that I was not in charge of this knowing process. It was just happening. I didn't even really get to pick what was coming into that awareness. This was just happening, just unfolding. And yet there was a clear sense in that moment. Okay, so I wasn't in control, but it sure felt like it was happening to me. And that pointed me to a subtler sense of self. We could say this first one is the self as agent or as as object, the one who's the or subject. Self is the, the kind of the subject of the sentence. I am the one who does this, the agent of the the action, and the uh, the me is a self as the recipient, kind of the 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 um, the object. I'm the hapless one that things happen to. That's also a sense of self. And I found it really useful to notice these three different flavors of senses of self. Sometimes a sense of self feels really clear. There are times when a sense of self is not so obvious um, and that's not the time to go looking for it. You know, it's... It, sometimes, you know, we might be experiencing some kind of suffering around a, an emotion or something, and we, we might see that there's a, a feeling of, 
you know, anger or frustration and, and we might think, well, where's the sense of self here? I mean, there's clearly perhaps the sense of I am angry or I am frustrated, but, but, but that feeling of the I am is kind of overwhelmed by the anger itself, by the feeling, the experience of that, that anger. And sometimes what we are able to notice is not so much the subtlety of the I that feels angry, but it's just the anger that we're noticing. We don't have to try to find the I in the middle or the I that's connected to dukkha. Just looking at dukkha is good enough. In fact, there's a teaching that the Buddha described how dukkha comes to be, a teaching of... um, dependent origination, these links of just the process by which suffering comes to be. And we've talked about pieces of it. Contact leads to feeling, leads to craving. When ignorance is present in the mind, feeling leads to craving, craving leads to clinging, clinging leads to becoming, becoming leads to birth, and birth leads to suffering. And so the the work of the... Um, uh, the first noble truth, to understand suffering. Really this pointing to understanding suffering. So understanding this process of this dependent origination, how suffering comes to be. That same process of dependent origination also describes how the sense of self comes to be. Becoming is this arising of the sense of self. Birth is taking identification. Identification is that kind of, one way to understand birth is taking birth into an identity. And so this same process is describing how the sense of self comes to be and how suffering comes to be. And so whatever is obvious to you in the moment, if if it's suffering that's obvious to you, you are exploring this process. And so you don't have to like go finding after hearing this talk, you know. I, 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 it's not necessary to like go, okay, where's the sense of self in there? And yet sometimes it's like that is what is staring us in the face. Kind of like when I was doing the walking and feeling that sense of like, I'm right. You know, that self-righteousness is a good place <laughs> to feel the sense of self. That's a great one. So if you feel self-righteous, take that as an opportunity to explore. What is this feeling? What is it? And, and as I saw in that example, how it just shifted on a dime and became something else. So that kind of, the, the sense that I had in that, that first experience of really feeling into that sense of self was how solid it felt how real it felt, how stable it felt. And then when it vanished in a second, it's like, wow, that was not stable. Thank goodness, that was not stable. Another way that we can see selfing I mean, I, I talked about seeing um, the, the, the thoughts in our mind about, you know, so many of our thoughts relate to me, I, 
I'd say probably, you know, the vast majority of our thoughts have me at the center. And we can tell this, our, our thoughts come with I, me, mine, in them. And yet sometimes our thoughts come with they, them in it. That person. They shouldn't be doing that. And so there's an othering. We are creating a self out of them. Making them something separate. And that process by which we other there is a sense of self here. So, and sometimes it may be more clear to us that we are othering. So we can be curious about that as a form of selfing. What does it feel like when there's this sense of imputing other, otherness? So much suffering comes from this type of selfing. When we create other, we create an identity here. And often these self and others have, sometimes these self and others can have to do with specific individuals, specific somebody that we um, have opinions about or views about. And sometimes these other otherings come from a more cultural um, perspectives, kind of tribal identities that we might have, you know, group identities that we might have that we don't necessarily recognize. And so the, the, the othering that happens around race and uh, sexual orientation and uh, religious uh, affiliation. This is a huge place of suffering and it, is, it comes about through this mental formation of selfing and othering. And so we can also begin to be curious about that kind of selfing, that othering. We may not be able to feel into the self that's here, but maybe we can feel into this sense of separation. When we create a sense of self, when there is a sense of self that's being arise, arising and being believed, there is a separation. It may, it may be us from some other part of ourselves. It may be us from some other person. It may be uh, us and some thing that we own. We are creating a separation there thinking that we can own something. So the sense of self comes with a separation. And we can feel into that sometimes. We can feel into that experience. Seeing the selfing, seeing the senses of self arise, we see how intimately connected with dukkha it can be. How these senses of self, these, we often have, have identities around... Um, strategies that we've used to navigate difficulty. Strategies for safety in our lives. Strategies for happiness. This is often where 
these senses of self congeal around. And so these senses of self have mistakenly kind of been trying to help us get through life, get through these uh, impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of the way things are. And very like when I talked about the, the tangle, the tangle of suffering, the sense of self is also a tangle. It's a different version of that tangle. Or maybe it's the same version of the tangle just seen from a different perspective. And it also is really important to kind of meet that with allowing and love to allow the wisdom to begin to let the threads untangle of that sense of self. Rather than trying to not self the self, meet it with mindfulness. It also has these kind of pointers back to, to love and to wisdom, these these, you know, this, this wish to be happy, healthy, safe, and trying to navigate these impermanent, unreliable situations and the tangle that happens there. So sometimes that tangle is felt as an identity. Sometimes it's felt as suffering. Sometimes we feel it as both. And honoring these with our respect the word respect it means to look at again the derivation of that word to look closely at so respecting these tangles holding them with respect and honoring them not to like dismiss our identities but to hold them with care let them reveal and release with wisdom. Let's just sit for a few moments. Mm 